Welcome to the Jerry Bovino Show. And now, here's Jerry. Jerry Bovino, you will not believe this story. This is only in Aspen, Colorado, could we have a story about a dog that actually took someone up a mountain and changed his life. Everybody in Aspen knows Rick Crandall. Hello, Jerry. Rick, welcome to the show. Welcome to Grassroots Television. Rick is like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. I've never seen him without a smile. I've never seen him grumpy. He's just a mensch. And if anybody needs a definition of mensch, see me after the show. I'll explain (laughs) it. So, Rick, you... You wrote a book. We're going to come up to me on camera one for a second, Jeremy. The book is The Dog Who Took Me Up a Mountain. And we're going to have a surprise during the show. We're going to show you this dog. The Australian Terrier, Emmy, E-M-M-E, changed Rick's life in the process. So, Rick, start at the beginning. Before we get to the book, just tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What's your backstory? Uh, born and raised in New York. On Long oh, Island. Are you from New York? Where in New York? Uh, Merrick, Long Island, South oh, Shore. South Shore guy, okay. And um, at that time, when I forgot to be college age, Michigan was popular there, so I came out to Michigan, decided to mix Midwest personality with New York personality, which some people say benefited me. Well, you know, it's interesting because you went to an elite school. Michigan's an elite school. It's one of the best colleges in America. And... Did you get your money's worth out of that? I'm always curious, because I always think if you have a smart kid, they'll do well anywhere. Um, I got my money's worth, but not because it was an elite school. It's because it had a great engineering program that in the early days, it, it and the math department had one of the earliest computer science departments. And when I first touched the computer, I fell in love with it. What year was that? That was in 1960. 60? 60. Man, you're older so than dirt. I, I have. <laughs> that's going to be one of the points in the book. Um, but it's I go way back to before the internet, before the PC, with computing. With the old, who was making PCs in the, there were, there no, were PCs. no PCs. Who you was had, who had like computers? Huge, IBM, IBM, Univac, you know, big filled the whole room. That's that's incredible that you gravitated. But what was it? In hindsight, now everybody has a computer, five computers in their house. Yes. What was it that attracted you? Why did you know this was special? Well, uh, at the time, the University of Michigan had one course, which was a one or two credit course, an introduction to computing. And I took it very early on. I think it was second semester freshman. At the end of that course, I just fell in love with the whole idea of programming, of the, how it enhances what a human could do intellectually. And then I got depressed because there were no more courses. And so you had to... So I, the very next session, I was in a mechanical engineering course in the first day, and I was so perseverating on what am I going to be able to do about this. I learned a language, a computer language. I was going was to forget Fortran it. Was that Fortran or even before? It was before. Um, and, it, you know, I was going to forget it by the time I graduated college four years hence or three and a half years hence. And I was depressed about that. And I was so inwardly thinking about it that I didn't realize the class was over. And the professor came up to me, hovered over me, and he said, I'm usually really good up in front of the room. But on day one, most of the students not too interested. What did I say that you're so engrossed? I said, uh, and I looked up in shock. I said, it's not that. And I told him my problem, that I had just taken this computer course weren't anymore, wasn't to be anymore. 
and uh, I didn't know what to do. I was going to forget about it. He says, um, I work at the computer center. Now, the computer center was God's country in those days. And he in said, Ann Arbor? In Ann Arbor. He said, uh, show up at 3 o'clock. I showed up at 3 o'clock. He offered me a job as a second semester freshman in the computer center, which nobody gets. And that was it. From then on, I worked at the computer center for the next four years. I began teaching computing in the third year. Wow. And I studied under him. So it's interesting. You just hit on a really important point that I make sometimes when I lecture to medical students and younger physicians, that we all have mentors in our life. You know, if you look at Hollywood movies, I love underdog movies, Rocky, uh, I love Chariots of Fire, I loved uh, Hoosiers, I loved Karate Kid, because every one of those movies has a mentor, somebody who helps. Remember, Mr. Miyagi helped. Uh, uh, it, it, it has a mentor, but it also deals with adversity. Ad something you have to overcome. Exactly. You have We're to overcome get to that. something. Right. And nothing, well, you're not overcoming more than in mountaineering every right. second. But so the mentoring is a big part, and we need some luck to get good mentors. And you had someone that arguably changed your life when you were a very young kid. Absolutely. I, I, I attribute that to him. He literally got me on the path that became my whole career. Okay. So while you were at Ann Arbor, you spent four years in Ann Arbor. You I did. You became a computer maven for the time. And then you started a company when you were 24. Tell us about that. I so I did. So what happened was that... Um, a computer manufacturer at the time called Scientific Data Systems had a sales rep that came into the computer center trying to sell a computer to the computer center. And a computer, he didn't understand much about it, but that it did something brand new and that it was called timesharing so that many people could actually tie it to the computer and use it all at the same time. That was brand new stuff. Before that, it was punch cards, IBM punch cards. I remember those. So, uh, he came in, none of the professors would talk to him because it's just, it was outside of their con consciousness. I did, and he said, oh, this is going on at UCAL Berkeley. And I'm going, okay. So he connected me with UCAL Berkeley. I dialed into their computer, saw what they were doing and how it was working. And I went and to back to the professors and I said, you gotta see this, you gotta see this. Well, when they saw it, and you gotta understand, this is in the mid-60s, around 1965, by this time, Berkeley, anything Berkeley did was okay for Michigan. Michigan right. wanted to copy everything going on at Berkeley. Those nude, were the Mario Savio days, remember nude, that? Nude parties, gotta have nude parties in Michigan. Right. You know, start with the marijuana, gotta have marijuana in Michigan. Oh, always, if Berkeley did it, Michigan had to do it. So when I come in with something going on at Berkeley in the computing thing, the, it really caught the professor's attention. The next thing I know, they sent me out to California and gave me credits towards my master's and doctorate. I never did finish a doctorate because I fell into this. So you were a failure from inception. And, and, and I went out and with, formed a company to use this new technology, left a few people back in Ann Arbor to figure out where to raise some money, in the meantime, I'm out in California working with another startup just like us called Timeshare, T-Y-M, and UCAL Berkeley. And we came up with one of the first timesharing computers. Timeshare, way before its time when sharing, now we're in a sharing economy. We have Uber, we have uh, uh, Airbnb. 
but it's a newer concept. What you call cloud computing, what everybody calls cloud, cloud computing, computing today, was timesharing then. Right. So it's, you were 50 same, years ahead of your same time. Prin same principle. It's, it's, a, it's amazing that you saw it. Yeah, my father always said the three kinds of people, those people who never see anything, they walk around in a cloud, okay? Then there's people who see something, but they say, I should, and they do nothing. The third guy is the guy that hits the home runs. He sees it and he does something. That's what you did. But it's intuitive. It's not like pre-planning, I gotta find something or whatever. It hits. It's like what happens in, it, with a passion. You don't know where you're going to get your next passion from, but when it hits, you know it when you encounter it. And a passion, it. we're going to get to that in a minute, yep. talking about Emmy and uh, the dog that took you up a mountain, because you haven't been an author really before this, about this, this kind of book. In business, I have, in business, but, but not a popular book. So, right. But you've been very successful in business. You, you're ahead of a few companies. That, that first company, Comshare, was just a springboard for you to move on to more business opportunities. What do you think was special about your upbringing or your education or your devotion? Why were you successful? How much of it was what you brought to the table? What do you think? Well, that's a, actually a question I haven't answered, had been asked before. Um, I don't know whether some would say it was because I was first born among four and I was already a leader of my that's interesting. Firstborns have an advantage. Don't uh, well, they? I, and I was treated that way. I was treated that way by folks in the neighborhood. I was treated that way by my parents. My parents were, were smart people intellectually, but high school educated. Right. Same with my parents. Never got to college. So, Depression, World War II, it never happened. So, with the learning that I was doing, I was already surpassing them at whatever age. And they, they thought I was smarter than they were. Well, that also set up some kind of an expectation um, that I rose to somehow naturally. But some of it's genetic, I would assume. Uh, I also think, I, and I always say this when I'm lecturing to groups of professionals, I say, you know, there's an old Yiddish proverb, if you want your dreams to come true, don't sleep. Okay, so you gotta work hard, but you need some luck. Okay, you need some luck. The, the, the stars have to be aligned. I know people who work just as hard as I did, and they have nothing to show for it. They didn't write a book. They didn't make any money. They never did anything. Jerry, I do have a belief about luck. I agree with you, but I also believe you can manufacture the environment in which the luck occurs. So if you have some knowledge of what, where you're trying to go, or who you're trying to be, or what you're trying to achieve, your focus changes, and you don't even know it, but those things which would contribute to leading you in that direction become more obvious to you, and you move in that direction. Perfectly stated. I couldn't have said it better myself. So here's what we're going to do. Rick has got a compelling story, and it's an Aspen story for sure, uh, about a great guy who changed his life by serendipity by a wonderful dog. We're going to show you the dog. Stick with us. But first, let's take a very short break to recognize the underwriters who generously support us here at Grassroots Television. Bishop Plumbing, Heating and Air Conditioning, and Bootsy Bellows. And we'll be back in a minute and keep it going. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, serving Aspen and Vail for over 40 years. Shoe covers, name tags, IDs. 
Let Bishop worry about your heating, plumbing, and air conditioning issues so that you don't have to. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, 925-8610. Jerry Bovino, we're back with Rick Crandall. Everybody in town knows him, great guy. Wrote a book called The Dog Who Took Me Up a Mountain. Rick, let's start with this story. We have to say a little Pamela, first of all. We can't tell this story without saying your wife is an expert on everything canine. So Pamela and I met in the late 1990s, and we got married in 2000, soon after we got married. She's an animal person, been an animal person her whole life, been in Aspen, well-known in Aspen for longer than me. And soon into our marriage, she um, woke up one morning and said, let's get a dog. Now this is after her having said that she's owned horses, she wanted a monkey, and she was thinking <laughs> about- Doesn't every woman? <laughs> yeah, she was thinking about other weird animals. So when she said, let's get a dog, I'm going, that's it. <laughs> let's make it a dog. That's we could have a monkey, a zebra, or a dog. <laughs> so, um, so she did a lot of research on what kind of dog. And she wanted a dog that was small enough to get on an airplane in those days in a, in a case under the seat. Right. Um, but strong enough to be an Aspen-type hiker. She never thought of climbing, but right. hiking anyway. And so the dog breed is an Australian Terrier. Uh, it's a 20 pound dog, 18 to 20 pounds in that range, so not big. Um, bred for the Australian Outback and strong. They killed poisonous snakes and rats for the, those who the were- The Terriers were bred for that, right? They were, and this particular dog in Australia was bred for, didn't care how bad the weather was, you know, whether it was cold, hot, snow, and different conditions. Um, and they go after and be uh, pets, uh, be companions of those that were in the outback. Okay, so the dog was fit for a rugged environment, let's say. Yes. Did you know that from Pamela, or was she the one that researched getting this breed? She definitely was the one who researched it. And, okay, yeah, uh, I know Pamela's a real expert, but does she, she shows Australian Terriers So too, she developed a passion about this breed, and she learned how to groom how to show and actually go in the ring herself, uh, and all the aspects. And she goes to the big dog shows, like even Westminster and those kind of things, right? She's won Westminster three times oh, with two different dogs in the breed. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And uh, she writes the uh, the international newsletter for the breed on one of the breed sites for, for Australian Terriers. So she's very passionate about this breed. Good, okay. I have to just tell you a funny story. One time, <laughs> I'm sitting in the Aspen uh, Institute, and I'm sitting next to some lady, and she said she lives wherever, and I said, she said, you know, I think my ex-husband lives in, uh, in Aspen. And I said, really? Well, who is it? She said, well, you probably don't know him, Rick Crandall. I said, come on, I ski with him a couple of days a week. <laughs> and she said, I was married. She went to Michigan with you, she right? She did. It was a nice story, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Everybody's got to have somebody ex-something. Uh, <laughs> all right, so now here we go. We've got an Australian terrier, terrier you're a geezer on your way to Codger, and uh, you suddenly have something that changes your life. So explain it. Okay, well, first of all, 
One thing I have to explain, because I've been a tech guy my whole life, part of which is venture capital, where I have equity investments in private startup companies, some of which went public in the 90s. By the time the tech bust hit in 2001, that really knocked me down. Knocked you down emotionally, financially, all Both. of the above? All the above. I mean, it was the point that you didn't want to be my friend in that year. Okay. Because it was, it, it was really a, almost a psychological, emotional thing. Because we had convinced ourselves it was a new world. And right. all of a sudden, all the whole dot com everything thing. crashed. But the interesting thing to me is there's a certain mindset, and we have a lot of successful friends, mutual friends here in Aspen, very successful. Part, I, I don't say this in a pejorative way, I say it in sort of an observational way. Part of their like mental well being is to think that they've used all their resources and intellect and intelligence to do something wonderful. And they're proud of that. And then when that fails, they, they become depressed. Well, I, yeah, I think depression, I don't know that it's clinical depression, but I think it's a decent word for what happens to you. Um, how I react in, in a failure situation, and if you do venture capital, you're going to have failures as well as successes. I just start putting one foot in front of the other. I pick a direction. And I just start solving problems one step after the other. It's a really good advice for anybody solving any problem. You just got to make forward progress. It may be slow at just first. Just like mountaineering, you and know. And don't it's the give same up. Deal. Exactly like mountaineering. Right. You don't give up. And the, the thing that I like about mountaineering, I've done extensive mountaineering, is that emotionally, if you can climb a mountain, okay, it's hard. First of all, and at the end, you want to give up half the time because the weather's bad and you're freezing, your toes hurt, you have blisters, whatever it is. If you can force yourself to do something that your body doesn't want to do and succeed, tremendous inspirational force for our well-being. So the one quote I've run into in the whole uh, effort of putting this book together was Muhammad Ali. And he said to win... It takes the will and the skill, but the will is more important than the skill. Oh, that's great. And it's right there. It's right there. That and That is exactly sure. what it is. So, okay, you know, you've got this beautiful dog and you're like so, enjoying So Aspen. Pamela, of Go course, ahead. was dealing with my depression and she kind of grabbed me by the collar at, with Emmy and said, let's go out and start hiking. And getting into the outdoors, getting fresh air in your lungs with the beauty that's around here, you can't stay depressed. It's very hard. Right. And so, and after a while, I started hiking with Emmy alone, without Pamela, because we kept going into higher places. Whenever we went somewhere in this area, if there was a high rock, Emmy would be on top of it. So wherever she went, we went, she wanted to go higher. So I kept going higher, saying, you know, how, how, how far is this going to go? Yeah. We wound up uh, on a 13,200-foot peak called Mountain Boy at the top of Independence Pass, when we got to that, that was the first mountain or, or place we'd hiked that actually had a stack of rocks on the top that says you're at a summit. A cairn, that, a cairn of rocks it, yeah. that show that it was the summit. Emmy climbed on top of, of the, the cairn, cairn and looked around 360 like she was a human taking in the view. <laughs> like she was on the summit of Everest. I saw right? joy in her face. You know, you say dogs can't communicate with people, but that's not right. They can. No, you can I do read believe them. they can. Yeah. And, um, and then I looked around, and I'm going, this is, this is great. This is unbelievable. 
I'm seeing things I can't imagine ha having seen. And it was not an easy uh, uh, climb to get up to it. It was a hike, but not an easy one. But you were by just you and Emmy and Pamela then? Pamela was not, no. Pamela just was you not and Emmy? Yeah, me and Emmy and another friend. Okay. A, a, a male friend, a, a local guy, Shan Stewart. So, um, and I said, you know, and from that point, Mountain Boy, you can see Grizzly, which is five feet under a 14er. Right. And if you, if you go left, you can see La Plata, which is a 14er. Right. And so now I'm thinking, hey, Emmy, can we do one of those? <laughs> of course, she was up for anything. Yeah. And we made a decision, I made the decision that we were going to try a peak on the other side of the pass, Yale Peak, which is a 14er, uh, near Buena Vista. And that's, that, was, that climb is what really got us going. It was tough on me, though. It's very hard. Were you, uh, were you athletic as a kid? Or? No. Uh, I was a swimmer, so I was a bit of athletic. But no, not significantly. Nothing athletic. like this. No. First of all, like a Jewish kid from Long Island climbing mountains. <laughs> and a techie. Shouldn't be. In, and, and a, and a well, You were a nerd and a <laughs> you had everything going against yeah, you. Yeah, not only that, and everybody thought I was depressed. So, I mean, <laughs> how's that going to get you up a mountain? So, okay, so you, did Emmy go with you on any 14ers? She did 16 of them with me. That's unbelievable. Not only did she do 16 of them with me, she did bouldering. You can't imagine. These dogs have very strong hind quarters and they can really jump they can really leap and she was exceptional and in 16 14ers I never lifted her once ever to get the summit and I'm talking about going through high winds you know yeah. what I'm talking about yeah. sun snow hail every condition you can th thunderstorms once with lightning um, and and she had the will part of the will and skill and she was going to get the Do summit. dogs get altitude sickness or not? They can get altitude sickness. Yeah. And it's something to watch out for. And there are signs that are similar to people getting altitude sickness. You've got to see if their tongue and lips are turning blue. Mm, That's God. one indication. Nothing worse than a dog with blue lips. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think I might have dated one if you, if you, once. <laughs> if you see so, that, turn around and go down. Right. <laughs> so, okay, so now you're, you're starting to climb these mountains. When did you get the crazy idea that you were going to do all of them? Because a lot of them are really, really hard. Yeah, so that, dangerous. that, that winds the clock forward uh, uh, quite a bit um, because, as you know, these mountains are graded by class. Class one is a walk-up. Class two is bouldering. Class three is when you start using your hands to climb up, right. scrambling. And then you need ropes as you go. And so I didn't know if I had the skill for that. I have a really good friend who also has been local in this valley for forever. Andy Mishmash is his name, and he lives in, uh, in Missouri Heights. He is, he is a superlative mountain climber, ice climber, and everything else. Totally experienced. Totally experienced, all the ropes, all the techniques, and knows all the mountains. Did the he state. teach you down here in Aspen, or did you go up the pass no, and do some took climbing? No, he took me with him. Okay. Um, and the, the first mountain that we did that had any kind of scrambling was Wetterhorn out in the San Juans, and it had a class three pitch. It was the first time you had done that? First time. Because, like, when I was a kid, I was climbing in the Shawangunks, you know, in, in New York, up in uh, New, New Paltz, and, you know, you're doing five threes and whatever, just going up roped, but you never did any of that. No. So, so when we got up and down that, and that's still not technical, but it's, it's scrambling. You know. um, 
My house, I live in Starwood, my house looks at Pyramid Peak. Every single window looks at Pyramid Peak. <laughs> it was like, like a blonde in lingerie. <laughs> Every day I woke you. up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy said to me one day, he said, there's a saddle about halfway up Pyramid Peak that you can get to. And from that saddle, you can see your house. Wow. I can get you up to that saddle, and we'll take some photos and so on. That would be a cool thing, because I'm always taking pictures of Pyramid. So we did. We set out, and Pyramid's a hell of a climb. In fact, I think it's the second uh, most difficult, second only to Castle. Because it's dirty rock? It's dangerous? Well, it's dirty what? rock, but there's also a, a, a almost vertical wall that they call the Green Wall. There's some narrow ledges. Um, and as it's stated in the climbing books, any drop is a dead drop, you know, right, if you come off. Right. So it's a lot of exposure on that mountain. But Andy was comfortable on it. He could guide on a mountain like he that. He could do it blindfolded. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you went to the saddle. So we, we, we got through that whole, what they call the amphitheater, which is a huge boulder field and up about a thousand foot gully and got to the saddle and there it was. I could see out to my home. It was a gorgeous. Could you pick out your house? I could. It was a gorgeous day. We were in the fall so that it was, the colors were unbelievable that you could see from that, that point. And he looked at me with a little bit of a smirk on his face and he says, so what do you want to do now? And I looked up as to, I mean, the really exposed parts are further up. I said, I don't know, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm not tired. I was fit, I'd worked all summer, worked out. I said, let's, how far up can I get? And he says, you can always turn around. That was a good answer, and you should always be prepared to turn around. If you need Absolutely. To. So we started up, and we were getting into class four pitches, which were, you know some chimney type things. But he had so the equipment that you needed to. We didn't rope. You didn't rope. At no, all. because he knew where there were places where the rock was more solid than others. Right. And I began learning that if there's handholds, I'm good. Right. And I don't get nervous by looking down at exposure. Yeah. Which I think is really important. But a lot of people do. I used to in the beginning. When we got the summit, it was a very... Oh, we, oh, so, no, wait, on. hold on, hold on. So, after, I don't know, an hour, he turns to me, we're both hanging on this, on, you know, on the, on the wall, and he turns to me and he says, you're going to summit. And it sent this chill through me, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, look up. He says, we're 200 feet down. And the last bit actually is less difficult on Pyramid. There's, it's very crappy, but it's, it's uh, not as steep. And we got to summit, and I got very emotional. I had tears in my eyes. We were hugging. and Because um, you never thought in your wildest dreams never. that you could climb a mountain like that. I mean, it's considering where you grew up. Well, it was then I asked Andy, could I do them all? Would I be capable of doing them all? And he said to me, the you're going to have to get even more fit. But if you do the work, I will get you up the hard ones. Wow. And then I had friends to go up the, the lesser ones. And right at that point was a very scary moment because we looked from Pyramid, you can see the maroon, the, the maroon bells. And right in North Maroon, we saw a rescue helicopter flying around. Picking up it a turned body. turned out right then there, a guy had died, had yeah. fallen. Yeah. And I now know where he fell from because I've been up there. Because you've been up north. Maroon. Right. But uh, that was the moment at which it hit my brain that I am, I'm going to do all the work that it takes. Even though I was 69 years old, 
on that summit. And I had a lot of mountains to go, so it means I was going to have to climb the harder mountains all the way into my 70s. But, but I didn't you, really think it, about the age much. Yeah, it's not easy, but redefining yourself. You know, someone once told me you should always redefine yourself every 10 years. Do something, get some new hobby, take up, I don't care, photography He was his example. But you re redefined yourself in something incredibly physically taxing. And it didn't, you weren't deterred. Well, uh, I had a moment on one mountain that really was a crux moment on whether could I really get to do Where was that? It was going for Snowmass Mountain, not the ski mountain, but the 14er. Snowmass the 14er is the most remote 14er in the state, meaning you got to go to the furthest from trailhead to even get to the base of the mountain mm -hmm. to climb it. So you're already tired when you get there. Well, but, but it, it was, on, on a number of these mountains, including that one, the idea was load up a big pack with overnight stuff, hike up to Snowmass Lake, set camp, right, and, and then, then start very early, early the next morning, morning to, to get up and down. Well, I hadn't had much experience with backpacking, you know, multi-day backpacking. Yeah. So my son flew out from Bend. He's a climber. My brother flew up from Phoenix. He's not a climber, but fit and younger. And they all wanted to do this with me. I'm loading up a pack. I'm throwing food in there. I'm loading up with, you know, three liters of water. And I got this. And I, how about a, how about a wine skin? It goes up where to camp out, right? Up, right? And my son is saying to me, Dad, you're not going to be able to carry this thing up. Well, you know, I picked the pack up. I put it on my back. And I said, I'm, I'm okay with this. Of course, I'm okay with it standing still in my house. Right. 38 pounds, which for an older guy is a lot of weight, especially you're hiking eight and a half miles and 2,500 feet up with that pack on your back to get to the lake. Five and a half miles into it, I couldn't move another step up. I couldn't, I literally had no muscular power to push Paralyzed. me up any further. I felt like I had this gorilla on my back and then a gorilla got on the gorilla's back. And you took all the stuff out of your pack? <laughs> No, I turned around. You turned around. Now, here I am with my brother and my son, and I'm turning around. And I said, you guys go ahead. Going downhill, I, I could do it. But on the way down, I started by saying, that's it. I can't do these 14ers. If I can't do this, I can't do them. As I went down in that step-by-step -step thing, my brain automatically started problem-solving. Started saying, you know... It's a weight thing. So what if I lose some weight? I mean, at the time, I wasn't exactly light. I wasn't fat or anything, but I was 195 pounds, 661. What if I knock 20 pounds off to my college weight? Yeah. And then I started thinking, well, I threw all kinds of stuff in my pack. You know, what if I really optimized and take down what the pack weight is? And so I had a number of these kind of thoughts. By the time I got to the bottom, all of a sudden, I'm all excited. Failure had turned into a, a new quest for success. That, that is sort of a metaphor for life uh, in that you can't let things defeat you. And we've You've got to take the problem the point, apart right. and solve the pieces. So what was the hardest of all the mountains? Capital Peak. Why? Explain it to... I, we always see that people get in trouble on Capitol coming down. They get off, they get off uh, the route. Route finding can be difficult coming down and and then they get in trouble. The biggest problem with capital, first of all, there's a lot of different pieces to capital. 
and it's uh, one of them is a ridge leading from a 13er called K2 to the, the base of the summit cone of Capitol Peak, and it's called the Knife Edge Ridge, and it's because there are places where it literally comes to a knife that's sharp, the, 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 the top, and there's like 800 or 1,000 foot drop off on both sides. So, I mean, it is just a mental thing. Most people turn back. How do most people do it? Do they shimmy across it, or do they walk on the side? Or? So there are the two ways. Yeah. So, so one way is to put some gloves on, put your hands on the knife, and you're hanging off one side, typically the left side, which is the east side, I guess. Are there footholds that you can... No, but there's cracks. Okay. There's these little ledgy things, not big, but enough to get your toes on to go across. Um, are you roped at that point? Uh, a lot of people are. I wasn't. Of course, it what could you, be more dangerous if you're. Yeah, roped. what are you roping to? You're roping to right. another person because there's nothing you're up here to rope fall. to. Right. Right. And um, what I found is straddling like a horse yeah. that a lot of people do was a tremendous amount of arm pressure because you're pushing yourself forward and slightly up and keeping yourself off the knife. So you're on your arms. Your legs are the strongest part of your body. Yeah. So it's, I preferred hanging off the side because I had places where I could stick my and toe. And how far do you have to go on that knife edge? The total ridge is 1,800 feet, wow. which is a lot. The real knifey part is, I don't know, probably a third of that. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And, um, a couple so, of football fields. So there's... The, um, Maybe the knife part isn't quite that much. It, it, it's certainly more than a football field. Yeah. But I, I you know, your, Were you your brain is. Were you afraid? No. You weren't. Not Why at all. weren't you afraid? Because if I have handholds, my brain is convinced I'm You're good. You're not going to let go. Right. <laughs> right. And, and it's, um, I mean, the pitches, and you know what they are, you've been mountaineering, yeah. where the handholds are not obvious. Where you just have a depression that you're, you're, you're putting your hands on, or, yeah. you're, or you're going with the stickiness of your feet on a slab. That makes me nervous. Did you watch Free Solo, the movie? Oh, of course. Oh, and, compelling. Yeah, what I, I do is, yeah, that's a whole even, different... I understand, but it shows you that how <laughs> amazing some people can make their minds to that's conquer what it is. anything. It's that's all what it is. This guy has a mind that's like a computer. But, but I'd love to say one thing for your viewers, and that is you asked me why is it that uh, you know, so many people die on, on Capitol. It is that they get off route, but it's not because it's difficult to find where you ought to be. Any research on the mountain, I mean, I have a website that has stories on all these mountains. If you looked at my story, you would know how to do it. These people think they can invent their own way. Right. And they, either that or they don't do the research at all. So they think, oh, they're up at Summit, and like, look, I can see the lake right down there. I'm not going to go all the way back down that knife edge thing again. I'm just going to climb down this way. Next thing you know, they're on top of a cliff. They can't and they move. can't get, and they can't go up, and they can't go down. And it's called cliffing out. Yeah, it's interesting because when I climbed the Matterhorn, this goes back 35 years ago. The Matterhorn is not the hardest mountain I ever climbed, but it's like yeah, it's a day's work, you know. And you climb up to the Hornley Hut at night. You spend the night. You get up at two o'clock in the morning, pitch black. And then you do a summit, you know, you go to the summit and go all the way down into town Zermatt the next day. And the interesting thing about the Matterhorn, the guides are relatively expensive. But you really, the, the reason you really need a guide is for, for route finding because yeah. they know the route. But this is a uniquely Swiss thing. When you have a guide, you start at 2 o'clock in the morning, they make you turn off your headlight. They know the route. They don't want the people who didn't pay for a guide 
to get a free follow uh, up the hill. That's so, that's so Swiss. That is so yeah. Swiss. <laughs> so they made me climb in the dark without my headlight, and I'm looking at all these people below us completely lost and off. But but haven't you found? Because I have found this most of the time. I start in the dark in the morning. The amount of work you do in the dark somehow doesn't impact you as badly as when the light's out. It's true, because you can't see how you far you're going. See, so it's you, like when I'm on my does. bicycle going up the pass. If I just look down at the road yeah. in front of me, it doesn't seem so bad. But once I look up and see how far I have to go, it makes me crazy. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Okay, so now you've, you've what was your last one that you did? Oh, my very last one was Pike's Peak. I saved Which is a walk-up. Because... I had so many friends wanted to meet me at the top, and there's a road to the top. <laughs> so a whole bunch of friends, some you know, got in a party bus, rented it, went up to the top, and met me when I climbed up to the top. And then there was parties. This was in Colorado Springs, which is where Pikes Peak is. And uh, we, we partied for the rest of the day and night. There are books of 14ers, right? I mean, yes. this, people, there are the books, and they, people document who's completed the 56 14ers? I call it, there's 58. There's 54 official ones, and there's four more that are named, and they're 14,000 feet, but the saddle between that and another one is not deep enough. Some people don't count those To four. call it an independent mountain, right? Yeah, it's, there's different words for it. As far as I'm concerned, there's 58, and I did all 58. And w when you were in the process of doing this, I read once, and I'm not sure about this, that some of them are on private property. And you one. Which one? Uh, Culebra. This is so awesome. Some guy from Texas bought a ranch way down, uh, very close to the New Mexico border. And lo and behold, there's a 14er on his ranch. Can you imagine? He's got his own 14er. Having your own 14er? Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, there's a whole set of stories about but it. But do you At have first, to... he didn't like, let people climb it. Does he let come people the, climb it or he charges them or what does he, he do? charges 100 bucks. Not too uh, bad. You have to show up between yeah. 6 and 6.30 in the morning, and then it shuts it down. He claims it's to pay for insurance. It's, it's a whole bunch of stories about that. Right. Interesting. All right, so now you've completed your last one, the big party, on top of Pikes Peak, where I've never been up Pikes Peak. I ought to... It's a long climb. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not just a simple walk up. I mean, Which it's... is the highest of all the 14ers? Well, Albert. Well, Albert. Which is everybody's first 14 Right over here, because it's... First and only 14-er, because right. that's a very easy walk-up. Yeah. But it's a lot of vertical. It's 4,600 feet up. Yeah, it's a long day. It's a long day. How high can you drive up on Albert, or you don't? No, no. Some your your trailhead is around right? Twin Lakes. Yeah. Uh, which is at about 10,000, and then you're, you're up. So did, through this time, did you have a blog? Did you have something where you were telling people what you're doing? Because all your friends got interested. I do. It's, called, it's rickcrandall.net, and there's a story on every single 14er. I'm a pilot also, and the first thing you learn is you don't have to land because you see the field, you see the runway, you want to get down, but if everything isn't safe, if the winds are wrong, if you don't have a stabilized approach, if there's a problem, do a go-around and start over. And that's the hardest thing when you're so close because psychologists teach us that the closer you get to a goal, the more you want to get there. Well, if you're climbing these mountains to put a notch on a gun handle, right. that's a, that, in my mind, that's a shallow reason for doing it. If you're climbing them for the passion, the experience on the total mountain, 
what is it, what challenges does it offer me? What beauty is around? What, what are, where are the wildflowers? What do they look like? The relationship between me and my dog doing them. Then it doesn't matter if you turn around because you say, I'll do it again next, another, next time when the weather's better. It's a great attitude. So how much do you think this has changed the way you look at this stage of your life, Rick? That's a big question for me because um, what I learned, remember I was in my mid-60s, first 14 or I was 64, um, and I, I didn't realize I was searching for a new passion in life. I was digging myself out of this tech bust stuff. I was still working, but it was no longer like my major passion, and I didn't have one. And this consumed me. This took me over, this climbing. How much do you think I, the word passion is, I always admire anybody who has a passion for anything. Skies who ski every day of the ski year. I, mean, I love skiing. You love skiing. But I don't go out when there's a storm and it's 20 below and the wind is howling <laughs> because it's like, but some guys are out there every day. The dogs of Aspen, those guys, are there. But think of this about that word passion. Um, when somebody is hitting 60 or 65, somewhere in that range, these days, the averages say that he or she may have a third of their life left yet. That wasn't the case 50 years ago. So what are you going to do for the next third of your life? Yeah. You need something that you wake up in the morning with some enthusiasm, where your brain is working, how do I solve a problem, where you keep your physical going, even diet and everything else, have interesting things to talk about with others. All of that, to my mind, comes out of a passion. And Pamela was supportive through this entire... She was. She was nervous, but supportive. Very supportive. Because it took me nine summers to get them all. And during that time, we had a deal. With all the parties that happen around here at Aspen and all the social events and so on, because weather is such a significantly important issue, any time it was forecasting two days in a row of, of no thunderstorms, right, yeah. I don't care what parties were going on, I'm, I'm gone. Canceling. I'm going to go do a mountain. Yeah. Because you, you can't, with these monsoons all summer long, maybe you have between five and 10 or 12 shots at, at a mountain in a summer. Safely, the way I like to do it, with two days of clear weather. How much would it bother you if you had done 57, but you didn't do, let's say, capital? How much would that grade on you? It would have graded on me a lot. Because you feel like you wouldn't have achieved well, your Well, and the first two times I tried capital, I, I ran out of gas. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get yeah, up. Physically? Yeah. Not, not because you were afraid? Well, one time weather was coming in, and I didn't think at my level of physicality I could get across the knife edge, up to summit, and back, back before, before the, weather. the lightning. So it was a weather thing plus, but I was exhausted. Yeah. I was really tired. I've come down from mountains where I literally am anaerobic. My lactic acid must be higher than the, the guys that in the gondola. That next year, and now know? remember, I did capital when I was 72. Yeah. Uh, that next year, I worked all winter to on get physical training. In shape. And it was right after July 4th, it was maybe July 10th, when Andy called me up. He says, you want to take a shot at it? So that's early in the season. I hadn't, I hadn't done other 14ers that season yet to prepare for it. But I had worked all winter long on it. I mean, and it was just the thing about the will again. All right, you need the will and the skill, man. And it's, uh, it, was, it took me 
it took me, including stops to eat and so forth, 17 hours. 17 hours of solid climbing. I know, and then you get down and you're exhausted. Oh, no, I was jubilant. I was just, <laughs> you could not even talk to me. I was so happy. So tell us why you decide to write a book. The Dog Who Took Me Up a Mountain by Rick Crandall, How Emmy the Australian Terrier Changed My Life When I Needed It Most. That's an important thing. So uh, because I have that blog, a lot of people would write me emails back when they saw these. And they, they know me. They know my age and, and, you know, would say it's inspiring that, you know, somebody could take on a goal like that with some of the challenges yeah, Some I had people never complete that goal in their lifetime if they start at 20. And, but, but the real crux moment, uh, one of the two guys, Andy Mishmash was one advanced climber I climb with. There's another one, a friend of mine who comes down from Alaska. His name is Rick Peckham. He was uh, ex-military search and rescue, a paramedic, you know, great yeah, guy to have along with a beer cans for breakfast. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> he loved telling everybody on a climb how old I was. I, you know, you stop, you talk, and everything else. You're always telling you, this guy's 71, this guy's 70, whatever. Well, we, were, we had just summited Wilson Peak, which is a mountain that's out in Telluride and is the one on the beer can, the Coors beer can. That's the mountain oh, pictured okay. on the Coors Wilson. beer can. Yeah. We had just come off of summit. There were two 30, 35-year-old guys coming up, tough, rough-looking guys, big smile on their face. You know, just about everybody climbing has got a big smile on their face, right, because everybody loves it. And they come up to me, we start talking, and Rick tells them, you know how old this guy is? Now, Wilson Peak was in my, I was 74. That was in the last year of Peaks. And uh, when, he t when he told them my age, the one guy looks at me in total shock, and he says, you have just changed my life. I said, what do you, and how, in what way? He said, I love this so much. I love the climbing, I love the outdoors, I love the challenge. And he says, and I just figured when I turn 60, I'm just going to take a gun and shoot myself. Because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. He says, you now just, I can you do just it. giving me my life. At my but a big part of it is also the anticipation, the planning, the root study. I mean, the I whole love that. thing. Yeah. Right. It's great. Because right. when I went with my buddies, we'd always be talking. And you're going to the North Face store and the Marmot store and you're buying... Everything that you need. And, you know, there's a funny joke about a guy who comes home from the marmot store. And he, and he says to his wife, you see these boots? These boots are good to 40 below zero. I could climb Mount Everest in these boots. And then he says, you see this Gore-Tex parka? It's good to 40 below. And he said, it'll be rain. You can have 30 mile an hour rains. You'd never get wet. And these hat and these gloves, and it goes on and on. And... She says, well, could you run out and get a bagel? He says, it's drizzling. <laughs> <laughs> Put okay. your boots on. So how did you get the book? Tell me what okay, you do. Okay, so, so that, well, there was so much coming into me that there's an inspirational message to give here. And, and, and I quote that it's never too late to find a new passion in life. And having a passion increases the quality of life, particularly at older ages, but better all ages, really. So when I got done with the, the last mountain, I emailed a few of the people that had kept telling me, do the book, do the book. And I said, okay, I'm done. How do I do the book? And I get an email back from the CEO of R.R. R. Donnelly, which at the time was the largest printing company in the world, on whose board I sat, uh, Tom Quinlan. 
And he came back and says, well, you're going to need an agent. He says, but it's impossible for a first author to get an agent. That's I right. said, well, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, I, um, so another friend introduced me to a friend of his who is an author. And he's actually on the book as, a, as, a, as my writer. I mean, I wrote, but he helped, he helped embellish or improve it. Okay, so that's Joseph Joe, Joe uh, Cosgriff. Cosgriff. Uh, and Joe is an author in his own right and had an agent. And Joe took a look at my website and some things that I had written that I was beginning to boil down into a book. And he said, I'm going to make my agent have at least one meeting with you. And then it's your job. I'm going to open the door. You, it's your job to walk through it. So I flew to New York, sat down with Joe and the agent. The agent took a look at all the stories that I had in Climbing the Mountains. And he said to me, I, I see a book here. It's, the writing's not there yet, yeah. but I see a book here. I'm willing to take you on on one condition. And I was willing to do just about anything. What is it? He said, I see two books here. Your first book is you at an improbable age and a dog who is improbably small actually climbing the highest mountains in the country. Is that, you know, now you're talking about people who love the outdoors, who love hiking, climbing, and that whole side, and, and you're talking about people. people who love dogs. Yeah. And because there is, there is a real relationship story here between me and Emmy in this book, all through, and, and uh, lots of stories, and lots of how man and dog develop a tight relationship. It's almost like Emmy was sent to you in some gift that... I look at it that way. I look at it that way. It, it's... Um, how old is Emmy now? So Emmy's gone. Emmy lived till 14 Emmy. and a half, lost her a couple of years ago. I do have her grandson well, with me. Well, let's bring him up. Ralphie. The best behaved dog on earth. You never heard a peep out of him. Come here. This is Emmy's okay, grandson. Then. A name is... Ralphie. Ralphie. And there's a couple Hi, of things Ralphie. I could say about Ralphie. Well, let's hear it. Pamela shows him, along with other dogs. He is the highest ranked gold grand champion in the history of the breed. Wow. So he is the highest scoring dog in the history of the breed. Um, and he has uh, all kinds of honors for him. So this is what a prime example of an Australian Terrier looks like. And describe what are the prized features of this breed. This, I like the hair. It's like almost a wiry kind of hair. So there's a lot of things with dog showing. I, I don't even know them all. But, you know, part of it has to do with, you know, I, I don't know how to put them in a stance and how they stay in that stance. Here he is. Uh, you know, the straightness of his back. The, the shape of his head, uh, the, the way he's groomed. Uh, she had to do a lot of learning about grooming. And then, of course, you know, they walk around the ring and how they... Yeah, they prance and it's, uh, it's like... You know, and then they feel all kinds of things like their teeth and so forth, that they're all straight. Uh, so there's a lot of issues associated. You got to get orthodontia for these dogs. <laughs> oh, listen, they poke them to places that you don't normally poke to I bet, check I things bet. out. Right. So, so what, that's Ralphie. What would you... Uh, what would you say if someone said, you know, like, this is a show dog, this is like a famous show dog. Suppose the dog wanted to walk with you up, up a hill. Would you take the dog with you? This one? Yeah, sure, I you have. You wouldn't be afraid? Well, not a... Okay, 
We've never had another Australian Terrier. We've had a lot of them that had the will that Emmy had. Emmy would fight any circumstance. She was unique. If there were, if there was, if there was a boulder wall the size of that wall, and I would go to try to lift her, she would run away from me and just go somewhere else in the mountain and figure out how to get up it. I mean, she got up amazing things. So it's it's these dogs, you know, they'll, maybe they'll take it. She was just special with regard she, to climbing. She had a unique. But as far as hiking, these are great dogs for hiking. They love it. And, uh, but Emmy was determined. That's, I guess, the word that would, would help us to understand. She, she was an impossible dog as a pup. Pamela was the one that actually had to deal with that. She was alpha in personality. She took over the house. And um, she just insisted on going higher. I mean, I basically followed her. So we've all heard this, when you go on a vacation, you go through school, and we've heard the saying, it's the journey, not the destination. How would you relate that to mountaineering? Oh, very much so. Uh, first of all, what I loved about mountaineering, you were beginning to go there. I love researching a new mountain, reading some of the stories about how other people have climbed it, visualizing what it might feel like to be on it, and then all the thing about figuring out the weather, what kind of equipment to have, and so on, and then getting on the mountain and experiencing it myself, comparing it with what I thought it was going to be, because it's always different than the way other people describe it. And observing nature, being part of it, um, getting to summit, and then and looking the views. There's so many different experiences and benefits of climbing a mountain. Now, when I say, you know, it's never too late to find a new passion in life, I'm not advocating mountain climbing to everybody. Right, because everybody isn't going to enjoy it. Yeah, it's a tough deal, right. Um, but, but something. It could be art. It could be anything. But, uh, you know, something to get the passion going. But you do need it. When I retired from medicine, and they asked me to write an article about retirement, because you picture yourself in some, like, old age community in Delray Beach or something, and yeah, you want to kill yourself. Yeah. Good thing about Aspen that we're fortunate is we have a lot of vibrant, interesting people here who like to do stuff. Um, but I, my premise was, if you love your job, especially in medicine, or you like where you are, don't retire. There's no reason. You can keep working. It's fun. Like, I like my job, but I wanted to be in Aspen. But here's was my point. Retire to something, not from something. And in this case, you had be when you were still phasing out of your VC work. You By the way, I didn't phase out, as it turns out. Once I had this new joy in my life, you I'm saying more to myself, ever, "Wait a second! Again, yeah. I love the computer industry." Yeah. And so I'm still very active. I'm still on three venture boards, and I uh, work with the National Cybersecurity Center in cybersecurity in Colorado Springs. I run the roundtable of the 50 large enterprise software company CEOs. I'm chairman of Donnelly Financial, which is a public company. So I got a lot of stuff going on business-wise, and I love it. None of it is an obligation. I just love doing it all. Is there a, a, a next chapter for you? Now you've climbed these incredible mountains, it's incredible experience. You wrote a book. Okay, what do you, my mother would say, okay, what are you going to do next? Yeah, my mother would say the same thing, <laughs> in addition to stop biting your nails. <laughs> <laughs>
and get a haircut. <laughs> um, while it's not physical, I am treating this book as my next adventure. Okay. Will you go around? Will you give lectures? I am. Will you They're already, they've got me lined up in many cities already for the fall. Book comes out October, it's available for pre-sale now. It comes out uh, October 5th, October 5th or 8th. Will people be able to buy it? The local bookstore, Amazon, right? Yes, yes. Both in indie, store, indie bookstores as well as on Amazon. And um, I have learned that the whole book thing is a whole different industry. And they have all their own challenges and problems. Because you wind up, you have an agent, I have a writer that helped me with some of the phraseology and, and writing. I mean, it would be funny because he would call me up or he would send me an email and he would say, well, right here, what did you feel? Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, I don't... What did I feel? I, I write like a businessman, right? <laughs> well, you're an amazing guest, Rick, and I, w I just want you to know that Pamela, the redhead, is the brains of the operation. <laughs> But you're an amazing guest. It's an inspirational story. It's like you say, it's great for people uh, at any age, but to do it when you're already, you know, past middle age is fabulous. And I hope that you inspire a lot of people to do something, even if they can't climb a mountain. And it's been great having you on the show. If you see Rick around Aspen, stop him and say hello. And uh, we hope to... Uh, Go skiing with you this winter and you, stay Jerry. healthy and good I luck with your book. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on Grassroots. We will see you next week.